Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, April 1st, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. No, really, you are. It's not an April Fool's. <laughs> I'm Indra Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, and even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Care to hazard a guess? How many viruses do you think there are on this planet? Oh, Let alone boy. in the in the universe, just on this planet. Um, by the way, scientists have no idea, so no. <laughs> so you're fine. No matter what you guess, you'll be okay. Well, I'm going to say it's at least as many neurons in my brain, which is about 86 billion. 86 billion. I'm going to take the over on that because the best estimate right now, or at least the most common number thrown out, is 10 to the 31st. <laughs> wow. That is, that is more, Way more viruses neurons. than stars in the known universe, I think. Uh, which is exceptional because we hear a lot about viruses lately. We hear Zika, we hear about uh, Ebola, the flu, which has been a common virus in my household this this summer. But not all viruses are bad. I mean, there can't be 10 to the 31st viruses and they're all trying to kill us, right? Maybe, hopefully. I mean, maybe not us, but other animals, maybe? Most of the viruses in this world are attacking bacteria or just, you know, coaxing along in what they kind of call life. And if you want to learn about viruses, 
I think there's only one place to turn to. I mean, if you want to learn on hands-on, you go to the airport. But if you want to learn about viruses from a reputable source, you go talk to Carl Zimmer. Yeah. Carl Zimmer's pretty much the preeminent science journalist in this country. He's a New York Times columnist. Uh, his weekly column is called Matter. He's also the national correspondent for STAT. And Carl and I talked a lot about this idea that, you know, we say viruses are our enemy to a certain extent, but maybe viruses shaped us more than we think. And he left me with this one number that just sort of stuck. And I've heard it before, but it just really resonated that if you look at our genome, about 8% of it are viral fragments. Only about 1.2% of it is stuff that encodes stuff that we think is useful to human life. So we're more virus than we are useful stuff to keep us alive. I know it kind of, you know, begs the question of are we the virus, <laughs> you know, on the, you know, anyway, but, um, but yes, no, uh, I'm, you know, incredibly uh, have so much respect for Carl's work. And uh, he's actually shaped the way I think about life itself by, you know, talking about viruses and what they do and, you know, whether or not they're alive. It's so interesting. He's the author of many books on viruses as well. Uh, there's met, there's too many to sort of recommend. Uh, but I would say uh, we had a ranging conversation about the sort of extremes of the bell curve when it comes to viruses. Um, so that I hope you look at next time you get sick, maybe you don't uh, turn your nose down at the viruses. So that's going to be our interview for this week. Indre, anything catch your eyes in the news? Well, yeah. I mean, so your interview is a little bit heavy. We're talking about viruses. We're talking about things that harm us. Um, so I wanted to go with something a little lighter at the top of the show. And there is a paper published in the European Journal of Finance by Yizhu called Narcissism and the Art Market Performance. So what the team did is they measured the size of artists' signatures on more than 400,000 paintings. So people like Van Gogh, Picasso, Dali, and so many more. And it turns out that in anybody's signature, the area per letter is correlated highly with narcissism scores on the narcissistic personality inventory. You say that like if it's like it's just a known thing that we all know, the narcissistic... I what? learned this from this paper, but apparently the more narcissistic someone is or the more or the higher they score on this particular test, the bigger their signature. So how big is your signature? My signature is a, is messy. It's <laughs> But is it big? It's not very legible. I don't think it's that big. I mean, it's so weird because now I'm used to I don't write my signature as much as I used to because now it's all electronic, right? Well, so, now it's totally going to change the way I interpret people's signatures. <laughs> so John Hancock was kind of an asshole. So like a narcissistic <laughs> asshole. Is that what this is about? Yeah. Something. Well, in any case, it, when they looked at the signatures on these paintings, it turns out that one standard deviation increase in narcissism increases the market price by 16% of their artwork. Now, is that just because they could read the artist's <laughs> like, the signature? Well, no. I mean, maybe that's part of it. But, so like you know, when it's up in your home, you'd be like, yeah, see, it's a it's I, you know, definitely but I wonder sign, if but it's like if it's like a sign of an artist's confidence in their work, right? If you mm -hmm. make a really big, if you sign the canvas with a big signature, like does that mean you're really proud of the work that you did, which you know leads to an increase in the price of the work because it actually maybe is one of your better works. 
But those more narcissistic artists also held a greater number of solo and group exhibitions and larger paintings sold for more money. I think we have to take the survey that assesses your narcissism. Be very interested to see where I rank. I think high. I also would love to see this applied to scientists too. I, you <laughs> Just know, for my own yeah. personal. Or like, what about presidents or anyone else whose signatures we anyone have? Anyone in file? the Republican primary? Yes. <laughs> or the Democratic primary? No, mostly the Republican <laughs> primary. I'm sticking by what I said. <laughs> let's well, let's take a short break before I get myself into any more trouble <laughs> and tweets from a certain political candidate. We'll be back with my interview with Carl Zimmer. This episode is sponsored by the Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America, and even our wonderful host, Indre Viscontis. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's the greatcoursesplus.com slash inquiring minds. And this episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is one of a kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500 and a king-size mattress is $950. To get $50 towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, Visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. Carl Zimmer, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So we often talk about uh, viruses as this relentless invader of the human body, inflicting disease and stress. And that seems to be sort of a current narrative in the context of all of these Zika and Ebola pandemics, even HIV. But to a certain extent, that might that idea might be out of date. And you have intimated that the boundary between humans and viruses is not as solid as we might think. Yeah, I mean, when we discovered viruses, they were just an enemy. They were just something that made us or animals or plants sick and sometimes killed them. And that definitely is part of the nature of being a virus. But um, there's sort of a two-sided aspect to to viruses. Um, They can be dangerous, infectious agents, but over the course of evolution, they've also uh, actually become beneficial. They've actually helped us out in some ways. And and actually, we have, weirdly enough, actually become part virus over the course of millions of years. What do you mean when you say we've become part virus? 
So there are uh, certain kinds of viruses that uh, can end up inserting their DNA uh, into our own genome. Now, some viruses like HIV, this is actually a specific strategy they use to reproduce. So they insert their genes into our genome, and then our cells read those genes and make new HIV viruses. Uh, And uh, when the cell divides, um, it can you know, produce uh, even more viruses. Uh, Then there are other viruses that just sort of accidentally kind of put their genes in our genomes. Um, It's not really their strategy, but, you know, there's a lot of DNA floating around in there and things get mixed up. But in either case, what can happen that's really weird is, is if this virus DNA gets into an egg or a sperm cell and gets into their genome, all of a sudden, uh, the virus DNA is actually part of the host genome, which is getting passed down to the next generation uh, and can potentially get passed down to future generations. So I imagine this has been happening for, you know, millions of years at this point, uh, based on the fact that our ancestors would have had this happening to them. Are we able to figure out how much of our genome tracks back to viral remnants, lack of a better term? Yeah, we actually have a kind of a sort of a virus fossil record in our genome. Because over millions of years, uh, these viruses go from being viable viruses that can still actually produce new viruses to just fragments. Um, But scientists can recognize a a viral fragment and distinguish it from a human fragment, even if it's in our own genome. Uh, And incredibly, uh, 8% of our entire genome uh, is made of these viral fragments. Um, just to put that into perspective, all of our protein coding genes, you know, all the genes that we think of as making us who we are, they make up 1% of our genome. So we have eight times more viral DNA in our genome than our own genes. Uh, and scientists can then um, look in other species and they can actually find some of the same fragments in the same places in their genomes. And what that tells you is that these viruses invaded our common ancestor. You know, So there are some viruses that invaded the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees, and chimpanzees and humans still carry the same fragments from that original infection. So that must have happened you know, maybe 8, 10 million years ago. And then you can go out further and further and look at other species. You can look at gorillas, you can look at lemurs, and you just keep going further and further out on the tree of life, and you can still find some of these viral fragments in them as well. So what that tells you is that um, these viruses can you know, infect a host, and then they can stay in the genome in one form or another for you know, 50, 80, maybe 100 million years. So there's nothing really special about the human virus relationship. I mean, this sort of relationship that you're discussing is across the entire um, kingdom. Is uh, Do humans have any sort of greater susceptibility or sort of re- uh, relationship with viruses? Is our percentage a lot higher versus other animal species? I don't think we're unusual in, in those terms. Um, you know, we're, we're a good host. And uh, so viruses uh, like to infect us, but they infect lots of other species as well. In the context of what these this 8% does, I mean, you said it's eight times more than sort of the useful part of our DNA. Uh, what does it do? So scientists have identified about 100,000 different fragments of this viral DNA. 
Um, there might be more. Uh, it, it, over time, it gets harder and harder to recognize them as being viral DNA because they keep mutating and they sort of lose that sort of distinctive kind of signature. Um, <clears throat> most of them probably don't do anything. Most of them are just junk, basically. They just sort of sit there and get carried down from one generation to the next. Um, they don't cause that much harm, and so it doesn't matter. You know, so in, in some cases, uh, if, if a virus is still active, you know, sometimes what they will do is they will produce a new copy of their genes and then insert those genes back into the genome. And so they're sort of reinfecting the same genome. Uh, and actually, you can see many, many different similar copies um, of the same virus in our genome. Uh, they call these families uh, of these viruses. Um, so, you know, sometimes they're doing that and that can be kind of dangerous because, um, you know, you, these viruses are mutating our own genome and that can be harmful. Um, so actually, you know, we have a lot of defense systems to try to keep these kinds of parasitic pieces of DNA quiet, just to sort of clamp them down, but they keep evolving ways to get around it. So it's, it's this strange kind of cat and mouse game that's playing out in our, in our own evolution. Um, so that's one of the things that, that some of these viral elements can do. They can still be kind of selfish viral elements. Do we ever use the the viral parts of our DNA to sort of fight off new viruses in any sort of context? Like, can we use the viruses against each other in any sort of context? Yeah, amazingly, we can, actually. Uh, it seems that uh, some of these uh, segments of DNA from viruses have been domesticated. You know, we have tamed them. So instead of being a piece of DNA that is, you know, programmed essentially to make more viruses or to act like a parasite of some kind, um, it's been tamed and, you know, turned into uh, this useful kind of purpose of actually, in many cases, defending us. I mean, there are several different kinds of functions that these viruses seem to do for us. And one of them ironically, is to help defend against other viruses. And there are a lot of different ways that they can do that. Hey, can you give us an example of how that would work? Like, because my sort of concept of what a virus does when it gets inside of us is it it's just there to sort of replicate and insert its sort of DNA copy. But how how do they really, you know, help tamp down other viruses? Well, you know, part of the reason that they can be useful is that, um, you know, their, their genes are kind of similar to, uh, you know, fully fledged virus genes. And so, um, in, they can interact with these viruses. They, you know, they're, they kind of speak their language almost. So, uh, one thing that, uh, will, will happen is that a virus will invade our, uh, cells and then we use one of these virus genes to make a protein that can actually go and basically lock on to some of the proteins in the invading virus and basically kind of block them, basically kind of interfere with them so that they don't work properly. Um, another thing they can do is they can interfere with how the viruses get into the cell in the first place. So what viruses do generally is they, they need to latch on to a particular molecule on the surface of a cell, and they'll specialize on one molecule. Um, and so, so the dock on there, it'd be kind of like a, uh, you know, putting a key in a lock, then, then they can slip into the cell. So what our cells actually do is they will make 
uh, proteins from our virus genes, and those proteins go to some of those uh, surface receptors, the surface proteins, and they'll lock onto them first. So, you know, it's kind of like trying to put a key in a lock, but there's already a key there. You can't, you can't get in. Uh, and so, you know, there's all these strange strategies. And maybe one of the weirdest strategies, um, something I just wrote about recently in the New York Times, is uh, that we actually have switches to turn genes on and off. And that's actually really important for fighting viruses. As soon as a virus comes in, you, you want to launch a really complicated attack. And so uh, our cells will actually switch on many, many genes at once to deliver a sort of this very complex kind of defense. We have little stretches of DNA next to these genes, which act like switches. So you want to switch all these genes on at once by having proteins landing on the, the switch in front of all these different genes. Well, it turns out that some of those switches actually come from viruses. So viruses actually are equipped with their own switches for turning their genes on and off in response to things happening inside our own cells. They're actually very aware of what's going on inside of our cells, and they respond accordingly. So if we switch on these defenses, some of these viruses can actually uh, tell that we are uh, about to mount a defense, and then they will actually then switch on some genes to produce proteins that are going to try to shut that defense down. It's this incredibly complicated game that we play with uh, invading viruses. Um, and now we've sort of turned things around and we've actually stolen some of those switches from these viruses. And now we're using them to turn on our own genes. This sounds like a, a really incredible poten uh, potential uh, component to understand. We'd, we'd have sort of a, a, a key to uh, potentially creating our own sort of lab-based you know, switches, as you say, sort of keys to, to block certain viruses. Is that the direction that this research is going? I think right now what they're just trying to do is they're trying to find all these things and trying to figure out what they're doing just in nature. Um, there's so many of them, and, and we didn't even know they existed in, for the most part until just a few years ago. And now scientists keep finding new examples of how these viruses are being harnessed for our own biology. But I do think that, you know, as, as we start to understand um, this kind of evolution uh, of basically taking these existing uh, parts and sort of plugging them together in different ways to, to get these new functions, um, yeah, it will give us a lot of ideas about, you know, uh, maybe interventions that we can do with, uh, you know, if people have, you know, genetic disorders, you know, maybe, you know, with gene therapy or something, we can be thinking about, well, how do we want these, how do we want to use these kinds of principles to, to change how people's cells are working? You know, I mean, you don't, in some cases, you know, the problem that people have in a genetic disorder, it's not that they have a broken gene and they can't make a certain protein, um, or they make a defective protein, it's that they're not, they don't have the wrong switches. And so they're not making enough protein in certain situations, you know? So, you know, maybe we need to be thinking about, well, how could we, how could we give people switches, better switches, basically, if their switches aren't working right? The, this brings me to kind of a, a simple question that I think I, I glossed over. Uh, viruses aren't all the same. I mean, there's trillions of viruses uh, on, on the planet, right? Yeah, the the um, you know we're we're familiar with the viruses that that make us sick. You know, like we we're familiar with 
the influenza virus and the cold viruses. And then, you know, you know, very few people have gotten the Ebola virus, but we all know about it just because, you know, it's in the news. Um, but that's just a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the full diversity of, of viruses on Earth. Um, scientists just keep finding more and more uh, new kinds of viruses everywhere they look. So there are viruses um, that live on bacteria. They only invade bacteria. So we have, in our bodies, we have lots of bacteria, you know, you know, maybe 30 trillion bacteria, and then they have many trillions of viruses that specialize in infecting them. And the same thing is true in the soil and the oceans, just everywhere. Uh, anywhere there's life, there's going to be viruses. And their genetic diversity is is huge, just tremendous. Um, and so actually, you know, when scientists find um, a, new, a new kind of virus, a lot of the times its genes don't really don't really match anything that's been found before. So um, it's, it's really the, the, the bleeding edge of, of biodiversity now. Uh, part of the reason I bring it up is, uh, is another article you wrote recently focused on giant viruses, which was, is a strange sort of family member of the viruses that we all know about in the sense that they seem to be much more complex than the typical viruses that we have. Uh, can you talk a little bit about giant viruses unto themselves? Yeah, giant viruses are really just utterly amazing. They um, they were just discovered, you know, in the past couple of decades, um, and yet they're incredibly abundant. I mean, they're all over the world in oceans and in sediment and, and also in our bodies and other places. Um, but they were kind of hiding in plain sight because they're just so big that no one realized they were viruses. Um they were hundreds of times bigger than a typical virus, and so people just assumed they were bacteria. Um, and then it took a while to actually realize that, no, they actually have a lot of sort of the key traits that all viruses have. So, for example, you know, the way that a virus replicates is very different than how our cells replicate or bacteria Um you know, we have, for example, little factories called ribosomes that build proteins. So all the proteins in our body, we make our own proteins uh, in our cells with our own ribosomes. Now, if you go and look inside of a, a little virus particle, you know, influenza, for example, um, you won't find any ribosome in there. They, they can't make their own stuff. But if you're a virus, you can go into a host cell and basically take over their ribosome and everything else to make new viruses. And uh, giant viruses, you know, they don't have ribosomes, um, but they're huge. And they are, as you say, incredibly complex. You know, a flu virus might have like, I think the latest count is like 13 genes. Um, and giant viruses, you know, at the latest count, the biggest one has 2,500 genes. Uh, it's just just incredibly complex. So with this complexity, what do, what are they sort of able to to do and and thrive? Because I imagine they are uh, under attack as much as um, uh, other viruses. They they probably have their own virus on virus battles themselves. Well, they do actually have their own viruses, which is kind of amazing. I mean, uh, no one. First, no one thought that something like giant viruses could exist, and then no one thought that there could be a virus of a virus, but it turned out that these giant viruses do, in fact, get infected. Um, the, the reason that they can get infected is that 
they have a kind of peculiar way of replicating, which is that they invade a host cell, they live in amoeba, and then they don't, they, they sort of like have this little kind of um, uh, ball that sort of sits inside the cell. It's called a viral factory. And they basically sort of bring in uh, different molecules from the host cell into the factory and then out come new viruses. Um, and it turns out that there's a tiny, tiny little virus called a virophage, which can actually slip into the factory and basically sort of take over and say, no, you're going to start making, uh, you're going to start making virophages. You're not going to be making new giant viruses. So, um, so even though it's a, it's a viral factory for giant viruses, out come these virophages, which can then go off and try to infect other giant viruses. So it's pretty crazy. Now, in terms of complexity, do these giant viruses, are they able to fight them off with, um, in the way like bacteria fight off uh, viruses, like something akin to an immune system of sorts? Uh, there is a, a new study that actually suggests that maybe they can. Um, you know, scientists have actually been puzzled to see that these virophages, these viruses of viruses, um, sometimes they can infect one strain of a giant virus and then a very closely related strain they can't seem to get into. And so scientists have wondered, like, hmm, are they defending themselves? Um, is that why they, there's a failure to infect? Uh, and so what these scientists did is they, they decided to take a really close look at the, at the, uh, at the genes of these giant viruses and, um, and they were thinking like, well, maybe there's something in here like the way bacteria defend themselves. So bacteria actually have a number of different defense systems. Uh, one of the most famous now is a, is a defense system called CRISPR, where what they do is they, they actually like steal little snippets of uh, DNA from the viruses that are invading them. And then they can then use that uh, DNA as kind of a guide to very quickly recognize the viruses if they come in again. So as soon as a virus comes in, if if the bacteria has this kind of you know recognition system, it can just send an enzyme straight to that virus and chop up its DNA, and then the the virus is is inactivated. Well, it looks like maybe giant viruses have uh, the same thing. That's incredibly complex and bizarre that they would have this kind of incredible system and still be considered a virus. This almost feels like a whole different organism, like branch of life, as it were. Yeah, people are starting to wonder, like, if if the even calling them giant viruses is a mistake. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're really saying, like, what are these things? I mean, it's like you say, it is incredible that, you know, here you ha here you now you have a virus that has... Um, it has many more genes than a lot of bacteria have. It's as big or bigger than a lot of bacteria. Um, and it has its own viruses and it has, has, it seems to have its own defenses against these viruses. And not only that, but bear in mind, like I said, like some of these viruses have as many as 2,500 genes. There might be others out there with more. And nobody really has a clue what most of those genes are actually doing for them. Like they just don't know. And, they could be doing all sorts of things that we can't even understand yet. So, so some scientists are saying, like, this is actually, this might actually be some bizarre sort of, uh, you know, extra branch on the tree of life that, you know, branched out for very close to the origin of life itself. And it's just been going off in a very weird direction on its own. And we're just sharing the planet with it. 
Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, we had Jonathan Eisen on the podcast like um, a few months ago, and we mostly talked about the microbiome. But off off recording, he started mentioning this as sort of ancillary work that his lab does, uh, really studying that fourth domain. And I think it might be the one of the weirdest stories that I've heard in the past few years that we may not even have a grasp of a whole domain of life that exists on Earth. Um, and these giant viruses might be a, a, a key piece to that. Uh, does it strike you in that way as well, that this is so – I mean, that's monumental what you're talking about, that there's a whole domain of life that we just haven't tracked to a certain extent? Um, if it turns out to be true, then yeah, then it's pretty mind-blowing. But that being said, um, you know, scientists like Jonathan Eisen and others, they're, they're – they're still trying to figure out how giant viruses are are connected to the rest of life, you know, in terms of evolution, uh, because you know the the fact is that um, you can tell pretty clearly that at least some genes that giant viruses carry they're very closely related to genes in cellular life, um, in bacteria or or um, species even closer to us, what are called eukaryotes. Um, so they seem to have sort of like been picking up some some of their genes along the way. So so the question is, you know, did they start out as some sort of full-blown cellular life form and then they lost their ribosomes maybe? Or maybe they started out as really small viruses, just ordinary viruses, and then somehow like just accumulated a whole bunch of stuff. And so in that case, maybe they're not as quite as exotic as some people think. But then again, like you say, there are people who say like, this is a separate domain of life that plays by its own rules. Um, and, you know, that's a that's a legitimate point of view in this argument. Um, and it's pretty incredible if that if that would turn out to be the case. Uh, and again, this is something, you know, something we had no idea even existed until not that long ago. So I'm sort of assuming that we haven't studied giant viruses to a, uh, to a pretty deep extent at this point, given how new they are on the scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, you have to remember they were discovered totally by accident. Um, you know, someone was looking in some water from a hospital water cooler, uh, a water tower, I should say, and just happened to come across this stuff. And, and somebody thought, well, you know, these are not these these are very these would be very weird as bacteria. I think they're viruses. Um, and then people said, like, hmm, maybe we should look for these in other places. And then they just started looking. And, um, you know, it's not that many people right now who are sort of dedicated to looking for them. So it takes a certain amount of expertise to know what you're looking for. But as they look, they just keep finding more and more of them. And, you know, the record for, you know, the biggest giant virus literally jumps every year or two. I'm just like, boom, boom, boom. And so we've only just begun to sort of uh, to scratch the surface of their diversity. I think this paints a larger question that I have is obviously there's there's math here. There's so many viruses in so many different contexts. It's hard. It's going to be impossible for scientists to track all of them. But how far have we progressed in our understanding of of evolutionary history of viruses, particularly in the context of the viruses that interact with us? Um, it's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, you know, viruses don't really like leave fossils the way dinosaurs do. So, um, you have to really rely on a lot of sort of indirect clues. So, 
you know, sometimes you can use this sort of viral fossa record in the DNA of ourselves or other hosts. Um, sometimes you can compare the viruses themselves um, and sort of see how they evolved from a common ancestor. I mean, the problem there is that viruses uh, have generally have very few genes, and those genes are evolving really quickly. So that kind of that basically kind of rubs out a kind of an evolutionary record. It's it's actually very hard to to trace back deep history with viruses that way. So you know we we know a lot about you know the the evolution of HIV for example, um, all the way back to its origin. That's because it you know in the early 1900s it jumped from uh, chimpanzees and gorillas uh, and monkeys into humans. Uh, and we can see that just by comparing existing strains. But that's just over the past you know, century or so. You know, nobody, nobody can really tell you how we got infected with smallpox, for example. I mean, smallpox is just an ancient mystery. We don't really know. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a it's tough, but scientists are keep coming up with these new methods to basically you know run all these virus genomes through giant computers and get some new answers out. Well, Carl, like thanks for taking us so much into this mysterious world, which might be the greatest mystery of life of all. Where can people find you, Carl? Uh, well, I'm a columnist at the New York Times, so I write a column called Matter every week there. Uh, I'm also a contributing national correspondent to Stat. And you can find uh, articles and videos I do there. Or you can just go to my website, which is carlzimmer.com. Thanks for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So this whole like eight times more viral genes than genes that code for proteins or, you know, how that number exactly works out uh, makes me think like, are we actually GMOs? But from the virus's perspective, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I don't think about it that way. I just think that uh, all it all it really tells is the story that our process to become human wasn't as linear as some people would like us to believe. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it really it still calls into question. We've done a lot of stories on on junk DNA, and you know how we're finding more value in that junk DNA. Well, there's probably this bit of DNA, which is really just a fossil record of viruses that have invaded us over time and, yeah, and and how we've passed down those genetic elements. And so I think it's almost like a paleontology of, of human life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it is it is a really interesting thought to just, you know, study the genome and, and try to trace back our evolutionary ancestry from the perspective of which viruses left their mark. Yeah. I mean, it's viruses don't leave a very good fossil record. So at least we have something. The, the thing that still breaks my brain, and I know Carl kind of walked away from it a little bit, is this idea that there's a fourth kingdom of viruses out there that we haven't kind of put a name to yet. And I mean, like I, everyone that goes through basic biology class, like gets those like, oh, there are three kingdoms and there are all these phylum, blah, blah, blah. And that we just missed one. Uh, and we still don't know. That's crazy to me. Yeah. 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 And and still, giant viruses like haunted my dreams after that interview. <laughs> and I have no reason to be afraid of them uh, just because. But they're so interesting that we have this virus on virus attack and that we only call them giant viruses because we don't have a good name for what else they are, because they might actually not be viruses in the way we have defined them. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see to what extent we can, you know, fight these viruses you know, better, especially when we have 
these major outbreaks coming out that are, are really influencing us and, and people are spending more time thinking about it. So, you know, it just we'll see. it emphasizes that war that, you know, billions years war between bacteria and viruses and viruses and viruses is going to be a rich area for scientists to study. And we've already seen CRISPR emerge from that. How many other techniques are and, and you know, just areas of, of knowledge gain are we going to grow? Are we going to gain out of that? Because we can't replicate billions of years of evolution in our short time here on the planet. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, viruses, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's a greatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by our own antivirus, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>